1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Wow. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 318. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. It is getting near Christmas, and did you hear the little jingle? Yes, with no expense spared, I went and bought that Christmas jingle. Oh, I just, sometimes, I go daft. One one pound, I think it was, for that jingle. Yeah, oh, crazy, reckless. How is everyone? I hope everyone is, honestly, getting ready for Christmas, and I don't know if I mentioned this, like, we get into Christmas far too bloody early, to be quite honest here, so it's, now it's getting the fever pitch, so... Everyone, I hope you're having a fab time with this build-up. and if you don't celebrate Christmas, I hope you know you you kind of got some time off, or you have you actually, I have got time off over well, Christmas. We've done, I don't know, most know our work shifts, and not often. Yeah, maybe like kind sneak the odd Christmas day off. But we've we've sat down, the lads, the the Red Brigade, they have sat down, and we've got. Either five days off over Christmas or five days off over New Year. And that's going to happen every year. we we got together with management, the 12 of it, 12 angry men. Actually, 12, 11, we have a, f- a female in the control room as well now. So we got down and kind of put it to them. You know, it'd be nice to, you know, family friendly. So we've got, I've, I've been, for the, this is the first year, and I've got the Christmas section off. So looking forward to that. So yes. Now, before I get into what's coming in the day's show, well, I'll tell you what, I'll I'll do that now, and then I've got a little bit of good news. First up is Film Talk by Dennis Lane, our very own Dennis. Then we have the main fiction, which is Rick Wilbur's Something Real, coming up. Then we've got another fact article, Movie Soundtracks by David Raikland. Then right at the end, we've got a little interview with Ben Cheney. Ben has wrote a book. And Ben got in touch with us and says, you know, I was like, sometimes, you know, you get a lot of people inquiring about books, but something just clicked with Ben and I found out that he actually, he's done the own artwork for it as well. And the artwork is stunning. And he's jumped in feet first, you know, left the day job to write the story. So how cool is that? So that is today's show. That's fantastic. That's what's coming up in today's show. But before that... The Bradshaws, the Bradshaws have made their goal on Kickstarter. How good of news is that? David has reached that goal where at least he's going to be funded. And I think we're probably about a couple of hundred dollars, Canadian dollars, Monopoly money, <laughs> from getting it where David will write an extra song for Starship Sova. So come on, man. Do you know I mean? But I'm so pleased a bit that you know, it's it's worked out there and, you know, we've got that funding going and that was just excellent. Honestly, kind of thank everyone enough to to make, them two people are the nicest people, you know what I mean, out there, lovely people. And to know that actually that's been funded, that's just, you know, thank you so much. Starships over listeners, you know, brilliant. Thank you so much. Let's see if we can get a song for the old girl, Lord Starship over. get a song, it reached 1500 Canadian dollars, that would be lovely, there you go, so that is the good news, Um, am chuffed a bit on this Christmas Eve, Oh, I'll tell you what then, <laughs> while I'm on, can you see, no show notes, nothing, I'm sitting here, I've been on night shift last night, that's why you see, it's a little bit kind of, you know, bleary eyed, it's a lovely morning outside there, and I live about Say five hundred yards, I think, somewhere around there. Not that far away, anyways, from the northeast, like the the coastline. And honestly, I'm not joking. It is rugged cliffs and everything. And after this show, I'm going to get up there, and take the dogs. I've got an that. There's an idea burning in me, which I'll, I'll tell you about. I might tell you about because it's got nothing to do with star, You know, science fiction starships so over at all. But I might mention because I might need a Kickstarter, and i said I would never do a Kickstarter. Starship so far but maybe you know I don't know we'll see how it goes Wednesday I'm going to go out for a walk along the coast with the dogs where's this going Tony I don't know but I'll get a little bit of what I'll tell you what's coming up next week on Wednesday it actually is Christmas Day the show comes out Christmas Day well we're not going to go out I'm going to give myself one week off there and Adam as well you know what can I mean? un unlock the shackles from him and let him let him run wild for a week well, actually, Adam's going to run wild for two weeks, because the week after that is like, you know, the first week in the, in the new year. And what I'll do there, I'll, I'll do a meta show, just to kind of, you know, what's happened, you know, I do this every year, what's happened in Starships so Over, and what's about, you know, about to happen. Then I just talk about things, you know, myself, personal stuff, health, life, you know, what plans I've got for the show. But Obviously, yeah, Sofa knows coming up, but there's other... There's other things, don't just, you see, don't just think, it's just so for those. And then I might give a little, because it would be actually nice to kind of get some people's thoughts on it, maybe this idea that I've kind of, this crazy idea that I've been cooking around, who can tell, who can tell. But anyways, so we're off next Christmas, not next Christmas, this Christmas coming is the Wednesday, we're not going to be in next week. So this is our little Christmas party, Christmas spirit. And yes, cue that music. We will have Film Talk by Dennis M. Lane. Dennis, sir.
0: A review from the Jacaranda City. Last week, I had to go for my annual eye test. And while I was sitting there reading off of the chart on the wall... I had a flashback to a movie that I hadn't seen for years. So, as soon as I got home, I pulled out the DVD and gave it another look. Today, I'll be talking about X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes, from 1963. The original title was simply X, but I'm guessing that potential audiences weren't sure what the movie was about. And, as the phrase, the man with the X-ray eyes, was used twice in the trailer, it was soon tacked on to the official title. The story is fairly straightforward. Dr. James Xavier develops a drug that will extend sight beyond the 10% of the spectrum that humans can normally see. We first see Xavier showing Dr. Diane Fairfax the results of his experiments. He sends a monkey crazy by giving it the eye drops, and then showing it three different coloured screens behind each other. The monkey sees all three at the same time and then dies of a heart attack. Xavier decides he needs to experiment on himself, and convinces his friend, Dr. Sam Brandt, to help. Immediately, Dr. X can see through objects. But, after taking over an operation because he could see what was really wrong with the patient, Dr. X is threatened with being tried for malpractice. He accidentally kills Brandt by pushing him out of a window, as one does, and goes on the run. The next we see of him, he's earning money as a mind reader at a carnival. The Barker, Crane, realises that X's ability isn't an act and so sets him up in a small surgery where he diagnoses people for donations. So many patients are turning up at Diane Fairfax's practice, knowing exactly what is wrong, that she guesses what is happening and finds Xavier. He wants to leave, but Crane threatens him with the police. And as X and Diane run away, Crane screams out that X isn't seeing their illnesses, he's giving them the illness, and that the crowd should kill him. Diane takes Xavier to Las Vegas, where he wins a lot of money. The manager of the casino is suspicious, and in the struggle, Xavier's thick, dark glasses come off, revealing that his eyes are silver. He throws the money into the crowd to cause confusion, steals a car and escapes. The effect of the drug is cumulative, and Xavier is now almost blinded by the amount of light that he can see, even through his closed eyelids. He crashes the car and ends up at a revival tent. He tells the preacher that at the centre of the universe he can see the eye that sees all. His eyes are now solid black orbs. The preacher says that Xavier is seeing sin and the devil and quotes from Matthew that if thine eye offends thee, then pluck it out. The congregation joins in, chanting, pluck it out, pluck it out. And so he does. There had been rumours that a different ending had been scripted and in the DVD commentary the director says that Stephen King was wrong about it being scripted. During filming he thought up an additional line. After Dr. Xavier plucks his eyes out, he says, I can still see. But the line was never used. Personally, I think it was the right decision. Produced by American International Pictures and directed by the king of the cult film, the Pope of Pop Cinema, Roger Corman, who was producer-director of numerous low-budget B-movies such as 1956's It Conquered the World and 1957's Attack of the Crab Monsters, Corman's career runs from the noir movie Highway Dragnet that was released in 1954 to this year's South Korean horror, Palace of the Damned, and is still going strong. He either discovered or mentored such people as directors Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, James Cameron and Martin Scorsese, and actors such as Jack Nicholson, Charles Bronson, Robert De Niro, Sylvester Stallone, Talia Shire, Diane Ladd, Sandra Bullock, the list goes on and on. In 2009, Corman was honoured with an Academy Award for Lifetime Achievement, probably the most well-deserved award the Academy has ever given. The year previous to X, Corman had directed Ray Milland in the Edgar Allan Poe film Premature Burial and wanted to work with him again. Most of Corman's films at the time had teen leads, but this project needed an older actor and the screenplay was developed specifically with Ray Milland in mind. Milland is probably most well-known for winning the Best Actor in a Leading Role Oscar for 1945's The Lost Weekend, and starring in Dial M for Murder. But he also appeared in a range of other science fiction and horror movies, such as the 1972 Revenge of Nature movie, Frogs, Terror in the Wax Museum from 1973, the original Escape to Witch Mountain and a small part in the original Battlestar Galactica. Dr. Diane Fairfax was played by Diana van der Vlis. Corman had seen her on the Broadway stage and brought her into the movie. Most of her work after X was on TV, for example the TV movie Ghostbreakers and 82 episodes of Ryan's Hope in the 70s and 80s. The sleazy Barker, Crane, was ably played by Don Rickles. Known primarily for his comedic talents that he honed in nightclubs in the 40s and 50s, Rickles was a regular on the Dean Martin Celebrity Roasts. His first film role was in Run Silent, Run Deep in 1958. And later, he had a two-year run in his own TV comedy show, CPO Sharky. Younger film fans will know him as the voice of Mr. Potato Head in the various Toy Story movies. The visual effects were by John Howard, who coined the term spectorama for the result of multiple effects created through lens tricks, repeated passes through an optical printer, eerie colorations, etc. They used some neat tricks to get some very strange results. For example, filming buildings at various stages during their construction in Las Vegas, and then reversing the result to show Dr. X looking through the buildings to the girders at their heart. Corman notes in his commentary that his movies were often treated far more seriously in Europe than they were in the US, and to highlight this, X won the 1963 Best Film Award, The Silver Spaceship, at the first Trieste International Science Fiction Film Festival. The movie has been variously described as a science fiction film, a philosophical film, and a religious film, and it is all three. At various points, Dr Xavier says that he can see too much, and would give anything to have dark. In his book, Dance Macabre, Stephen King puts the argument that there is a strong Lovecraftian quality to X, basing it on Xavier being driven almost insane by seeing the godlike eye at the centre of the universe. But, above all the philosophising, it is a fast-paced, tightly plotted, fun movie. Apparently, years later, Ray Milan said that there were just two movies that he was proud of, The Lost Weekend and X. I recommend that you give it a look. Now, I need to dig out my old comic books. I'm sure that at least one of them has an advert for some x-ray specs. Bye. There you go. Dennis,
2: Merry, Merry Christmas, Squire. Down there in South Africa. Man, the main man's gone. Do you know what I mean? That's just been so kind of surreal. Watch it on telly. You know, you had like a three or four-day funeral and... Mind you, everyone still up this way, you know, England and everything like that, talking about Obama's speech that he gave for Mandela. Do you know what I mean? Amazing. Dennis, uh, thank you so much. Have a lovely Christmas and I will see you in the new year. So, next up is the main fiction, Something Real by Rick Wilbur. Rick is a journalism professor at the University of South Florida in Tampa. He is also a writer who has published two novels, several short story collections, a memoir, several college textbooks on writing and editing for some of the world's largest publishers. He also publishes some 50 poems in various magazines. I can't use it every time I say po- poems. He also published some 50 poems. <laughs> I try to sound a bit posh there. In various reviews and magazines in the US, Scotland, and Ireland and has published more than 50 short stories in magazines and anthologies, ranging from Fantasy Science Fiction, Ajimov Science Fiction Magazine. Rick is the director of USF Island Travel Study Tour, which visits Dublin, London, Limerick, Galway, Dingle, and other great locations in England and Ireland each July and August. Rick is the co-founder, co-judge, and administrator of for the Dell Magazines Awards for Undergraduate Excellence in Science Fiction and Fantasy Writing. He thinks it's the top award in the world for college undergraduates interested in writing science fiction and fantasy. Something Real, which we're about to play now, won the 2013 Sidewise Award for Best Alternative History Short Form. There you go. And it is narrated by Logan Waterman. Now, Logan just did, I think it was last week's story as well. So, Logan, I've got to get, you're getting the money's worth out of you, sir. Thank you very much. So, the Starship Sova is very
3: proud to present. Something Real by Rick Wilbur. July 22nd, 1943. Baseball was a game of constant disappointment. You swing and you mostly miss. You think it's an easy grounder and it bad hops you. You're called out at third trying to advance on a single. A pop foul to end the game drifts away from your glove as you reach over the rail. One thing after another, one game after another, one season after another. All this and an endless progression of childish mediocrity. No wonder he was depressed. Surely there were better things to do with one's life than catch and throw and swing a stick at baseballs. Mo Berg, M.S., M.A., Ph.D., L.L.D., was a well-educated man, a scholar, a man of great promise. Yet here he sat, a baseball player, in the dugout of Comiskey Park watching the rain fall and gather into puddles atop the tarp that covered the infield. The puddles rippled in the wind, tiny oceans getting wider by the second. It had been raining steadily for half an hour, and then moments ago there had been a bright bolt of lightning and an immediate and massive crack of thunder. Now it was really pouring. Surely the game would be called in the next few minutes. Moe had had two hits that day. A very nice opposite field homer to right, thank you very much, and a rare triple into the gap it left. The Sox were in front by six runs after three innings, but now none of that would matter. The would-be victory would disappear into the hiss of the rain, and Moe's home run and triple wouldn't exist past today. Perfect. Just perfect. Like his season, like his whole career, like his life. The occasional good days were always washed away by a cold, gray rain. Now, instead of one good day at the plate, there'd be a doubleheader tomorrow, and he'd probably go O for the day or something close to that. Every now and again it occurred to Moe that perhaps his father was right. Perhaps it was time to retire from this child's game and get started on real life. Perhaps it was time to do something that mattered. Something real. December twelfth, 1944 Moe Berg looked around the room. The thick wool drapes, so purple as to be nearly black, were tied back to allow the sunshine to spill through the narrow, tall windows that marched along the left side of the small lecture hall in the Physics Institute at the Ungernotstadt Technik School, the ETH. The bright warmth in the room was a welcome luxury for a cold December day in neutral Zurich. Berg had heard an hour ago that a few hundred miles away from this very spot, Patton's Fifth Army was out of gas for the Shermans. This meant von Rungstadt didn't need to worry about an Allied relief column, and so, sort of a miracle like the clouds and fog clearing out unexpectedly so the P-47s could get back into business, the Nazi 6th SS Panzer under Dietrich was going to break through Bastogne at any moment, and from there it would be easy going as the tanks headed towards the fuel tanks at Antwerp. Christ, the war might go on for another year or two. A narrow lectern stood at the front of the room. A blackboard on wheels was behind the lectern, and there were two dozen wooden chairs in tight, perfect rows in front of the lectern. There were no empty seats, and an extra dozen people stood against the radiators at the back of the room. Paul Scherer was there, of course, and nodded and smiled when he saw Berg. Marcus Fiers was there, too, and Gregor Wenzel, Wolfgang Pauly, Ernest Stuckelbrook, and up front, at the corner, Karl Friedrich von Weisstacker. Berg sat in the second row, where he was close enough to get the job done. He'd scored a marksman rating with a service revolver at this kind of distance. That was one reason he was here. His pal, Paul Scherer, had managed to get him the invitation to the speech, listing him as an Italian physicist working with Fermi in Rome. Berg felt bad about that. If he did do the job, it would get out soon that Scherer had been involved. That would be messy. There were Nazis everywhere in Zurich. Berg had told Piet Gugelot... The Dutch Jewish physicist, how to follow up on the arrangements to get Scherer and his family out of Switzerland and down into Italy. From there, with Fermi's help, they could all get to the States. Berg didn't expect he'd be able to help with any of that, since he wouldn't survive more than a few seconds after taking action against Heisenberg. Too many Nazis in the room, all of them armed. Once they realized the Italian physicist named Antonacci was in fact an American assassin, they'd act quickly. Berg did look like he belonged in the crowd. Brown shoes, slacks, tweed jacket. He'd thought about smoking a pipe, but decided he didn't look natural enough doing that. Otherwise, he fit right in. He earned a little credit, he hoped, by working his way into a couple of interesting conversations on S-Matrix theory that had been going on in the hallway outside before the door opened to the room. Berg liked the elegance of the math and had said so to several people, citing examples. They'd nodded and agreed then bounced ideas off one another for a few minutes until the classroom door opened and, along with the others, Berg walked in and taken a seat. He crossed his right leg over his left and sat back, relaxed as the last few stragglers came in, looking for a little space in which to join those who stood at the back. The last to come in was a tall, very attractive woman. Stuckelberg rose and offered her his seat, and she took it. Berg knew this woman. A real looker, tall, thin, black hair, red lips, wearing a very business-like dress with padded shoulders and a vest. He wondered if there wasn't a gun hidden somewhere in all that fabric. He'd seen her several different times over the past couple of years. He was certain of it. He had a very good memory for such things. The first time, back in 41, she'd been sitting in the box seats, front row behind the home dugout at Comiskey, as the White Sox did battle with the Browns on a Sunday in June. Not much of a crowd there, the Sox being all right, but the Brownies miserable. Berg had played first that day, and had himself an RBI double, and then scored on an Alex Irvin single. He'd tipped his cat to the few fans who were cheering after he'd crossed home, and was headed toward the dugout. She'd smiled at him. He'd winked back, and then had the bat boy take a note up to her saying he was staying at the Piccadilly Hotel on Wabash, and he'd be pleased to celebrate the day's win by taking her out to dinner. He'd looked for her at 8 o'clock in the lobby. The chop house had great stakes, but she didn't show. The second time, a year later, he'd been in London, at the Claridge, working on Alsos. She'd been sitting in the lobby reading the Times, and had lowered it to watch him walk by, smiling at him knowingly. He'd smiled back, but he was already late for a meeting with Carvelli to make arrangements for Italy and Fermi, and so he didn't have time to do more than smile and nod. She'd nodded back, still smiling. An hour later, when he walked back through the lobby, she was gone. The next time... In Paris, just a couple of months later, he'd felt a friendly tap on his shoulder and then heard her say Bonjour, Monsieur Berg, as she'd walked by him one evening on the Pont Neuf, where he'd been leaning on the railing watching the large barge go by on the Seine below. He'd turned, embarrassed that he hadn't noticed her until after she'd touched him, but she was already walking away, half turning to wave goodbye. He was waiting for a contact and couldn't leave the spot and had to watch her go. He felt dizzy and nauseous for a moment, and when that passed he turned back toward the sign and the same barge from before was somehow upstream and starting its way down again to go under the bridge again as he watched. There was no explaining that, and he was afraid to mention it to anyone. They'd pull him out of there and bring him home as a head case, probably, and he didn't want that. The last time, six months ago in Rome, he'd been sitting outside the awning at the Trattoria Monte di Via di San Vito with Fermi, talking about what Italy had been like under Mussolini before the assassination in thirty-eight, A dirigible, a fast little Enzo on sentry duty, chugged by overhead. Fifty miles north was the Lateran line, and north of that there were Germans. A lot of them. Here in Roma, though, the sun was shining, and Italy was Italian again. Enrico was talking when she walked by. Yes, amo, all of Italy was ours, but the price was so very high. Spies everywhere— as though there weren't any now, Berg thought to himself. And the one that feared the one's the soul, Enrico smiled. When the coup d'etat was successful, we all thought of the nightmare had ended, but, of course, it wasn't so simple. She'd been hard to miss in her outfit, blue shorts and a white blouse with a blue scarf and a sailor cap. Her hair was different, red, and she seemed taller somehow, but it was hard to say, and she was stunning. Enrico, who had turned to look at her, said, giorno." She Bonjournoed right back to Enrico, and then looked straight at Byrne, smiled, and said, "'Ciao, Signor Berg," and walked away. He winked at Enrico, and then rose from the table to follow her, caught up to her by the time they reached the Trevi Fountain, reached out, and grabbed her arm so he could finally talk to her and find out what the hell was going on. But then he'd stumbled, went down to his knees, sick to his stomach for a few moments, and when that passed, he looked up, and she was gone, as was the Trevi Fountain." He was standing next to the Cola Opio Gardens, and there, a few blocks away, was the Colosseum. Jesus Christ! He shook his head and began to walk back to Enrico. Good thing the café was close. So he wasn't surprised to see her here, though she was a major complication, and Berg didn't like complications. He had a job to do here. Dangerous work. And if she'd been in Chicago, and London, and Paris, and Rome, and now was here, then she was in on it somehow. One side, the other... Some other side completely? He didn't know. He didn't like not knowing. He had to ask himself why he hadn't brought her up with John Sheehan, his handler. He shifted in his chair, putting both feet back on the floor. He could feel the uncomfortable tug of the athletic tape that held the tiny Beretta tightly to his groin, Well, there was nothing he could do about her right now. He was here, today was the day, and that was all there was to it. He had a job to do. The door at the side of the room opened again, and in walked Werner Heisenberg. There was a smattering of polite applause from the gathered scientists. How do you greet a colleague and a friend, and one of the world's greatest minds, when he's brilliant but working for the Nazis? Heisenberg was in charge of the Uranverein, the uranium club, which is to say, Hitler's A-bomb program. But this wasn't about that. At least for everyone but Berg, So when Paul Scherer walked to the podium to introduce Heisenberg, Berg sat back in his chair and made sure to look calm and relaxed. Time to listen very carefully. September fifteenth, 1943 A dismal season was winding down. Mo Berg had played first base again and had gone 0 for 5 as the Sox lost to the Yankees. Berg's contribution to the humiliation had been three strikeouts and an error on a ground ball. In the clubhouse after the game, the air was thick with cigar smoke, grumbling, and monarch beer to drown the various sorrows. Mo sat disappointed on a folding chair in front of his open wooden locker. He was contemplating what an O for Five day could do to your psyche and your season and your career when you're in your thirties when you heard a throat clear behind him. Damn sports writers. He turned and instead of the rumpled old suit and the beat up fedora he expected, It was a man dressed in trousers with a tight crease, a vest, an expensive coat and bow tie, no hat, glasses, smoking a camel. Mr. Berg? Mo? Berg shook his head. I'm not speaking to the press, friend. I made that clear last week. No quotes, no off the record, nothing till this slump is over. Got it? The man smiled and was nice enough not to get into whether a .210 season batting average was still a slump or not. I'm not with the press, Mr. Berg. My name is Huntington, Ellery Huntington. I'm here at the request of a man named William Donovan. He'd like to meet with you. Berg frowned. The Donovan who was a war hero in the Meuse ergon and then a district attorney up in Buffalo? I believe I met him once a few years ago. We shook hands, and I autographed a ball for him. You have an excellent memory, Mr. Berg. He did, in fact, have an excellent memory, and an IQ of 180 and a doctorate in classical languages from Princeton and a law degree from Yale. And yet he was still playing baseball in Chicago and mostly going over for the day. So, what would the district attorney and a war hero want with a baseball player, Mr. Huntington? Uh, Mr. Donovan is no longer a district attorney, Mr. Berg. He now works for the federal government. He's more interested in your language skills and your batting average. Berg allowed himself a sad chuckle. <laughs> That's a good thing. Have you seen my batting average? Huntington smiled back. Mr. Donovan has been looking at these photos you took in Japan during the Sox tour back in 37. Those snaps are very good, and he knows you speak French and German. He understands that you're something of a science buff as well. An Italian and Spanish and Hebrew and a few more. And I read a lot, Mr. Huntington. Science is one of the things I read, along with the sports page in the newspapers. And the front pages? Yes, and the front pages. "'We felt certain of that, Mr. Berg, and we feel certain, too, about your patriotism. "'Mr. Donovan would like to talk to you about that, about your patriotism. "'He knows you've tried to enlist, but the army wouldn't take you. "'Or the Navy, Mr. Huntington. They don't like the shape of my feet. "'But if your Mr. Donovan has found a way I can take part, I'm all for it. "'Do I have time to take a shower and comb my hair?' Huntington smiled again and nodded. Of course, Mr. Berg, take your time. And then we'll head over to your hotel and you and Mr. Donovan can have that conversation. Does that sound all right? Moe thought about his slump. The season wasn't young anymore, and neither was he. And there were guys fighting and dying in Europe, and he'd been thinking a lot about how he ought to be involved in that, flat feet or not. He looked up at Huntington. Give me ten minutes. And that was all it took. Ten minutes, a taxi ride, and a five-minute conversation with wild Bill Donovan. December 12, 1944. Berg watched Heisenberg smile weakly. He spoke in German. Hello, everyone. It is good to be here and to see so many of my friends and colleagues from better days. May those days return soon. And for those of you who are students at this fine university, I greet you warmly and celebrate your learning. I will leave enough time at the end of this discussion to answer questions. He paused, smiling again slightly. Please, friends, colleagues, let us step away from Zavar for just this brief time and focus our attention on the matter at hand, S-Matrix Maths. I will gladly take questions afterwards, but outside the scope of this discussion, I can take no questions. I am sure you understand. Berg understood. The Gestapo was here in one guise or another— And there were others in the room, too, no doubt, who would report back to Berlin on what Professor Heisenberg had to say, starting with that weasel von Weissacker. The professor was smart enough to stay out of trouble and focus on S-Matrix theory, as advertised. August 12, 1944 Think Maggiore was warm in the shallows and then colder, much colder the farther out Moberg swam with his new pal Enrico Fermi. They were headed out to the raft anchored near the marker buoys for the swimmers. It was a muggy day, and after a long bicycle ride together along the Via Roma, the two men, Italy's finest physicist and the American baseball player, had pedaled through the village of Pino and come out on a strand of beach along the lake. Just half a mile away, the Via Roma changed names and became the Duferstrasse on the Swiss side of the border. In a couple of hours, they would be having lunch with Paul Scherer, who had asked for a meeting. They risked coming here because the meeting with Scherer was important to the whole project, though the meeting was fraught with risk. A ferry ride up from Rimini to Venice, skirting no- the occupied portions of Italy, and then a long, harrowing flight up to and then through the southern edge of the Dolomites in an Enzo Massimo dirigible that finally got them to Macago and the shore. A real nail-biter, that blimp ride. But then it was done, and they'd walked into town from a field and found their pension. and had a good meal, and rented bikes for today, shared by a bottle of wine, and then hit the sack. Now here they were, within a couple of easy miles by bike of the meeting, and with a few hours to kill. A cool swim seemed like a good idea, and then they'd get up to town, cross the border into Switzerland, and hear what Scherer had to say. Berg wasn't himself palling around here with Fermi, a guy he really liked. Here, for now... Berg was Mario Antonacci, a wealthy industrialist and shipbuilder from Brindisi, a man of substance who had stopped building warships for Mussolini after the coup and had gone back to building freighters for the Mattiotti government, which ran things south and east of the Lateran line. Strictly neutral Mattiotti and his pals, the only way to stay alive with Germans in control of the northwest portions of Italy. Fermi climbed the ladder of the wooden raft and sat down next to Berg. it beautiful here he said in Italian, leaning backward to get his face to the mountain sun. Edda e tranquilo, Berg said, a separate world away from the war. Fermi shook his head. Not the separate enough, I think. Look at there. And he pointed east. Tiny dots marched across the sky in formation. A medic in a bomb resembling for Munich, perhaps. Weiner Neustadt, I think, near Vienna. There's this Messerschmitt factory there. Ah. Fermi stood. He was slightly built, thin, about five foot eight, unprepossessing, but he was a towering figure where it mattered, in physics. Fermi was one of the handful of scientists who could stand next to Heisenberg in matters of intellect. Fermi, Bohr, Oppenheimer, Weissacker, Hahn, the list was a short one, and with Einstein's macabre death in 38, had lost its titular head. Now it was up to Heisenberg or Opie to see who'd be the one to change the world. Berg wondered if Fermi realized this. Well, if he didn't realize it yet, he would in a couple of hours. Time to meet with Scherer and see about saving the world. December 12, 1944 Trouble was, as the afternoon lecture wore on, when it came to S-Matrix theory, or the scattering matrix, as Herr Professor called it, Heisenberg didn't seem to have anything new to say. Berg had done his homework, reading up on... John Archibald Weaver's paper from 1937, which coined the term scattering matrix as it described coefficients that connected the asymptotic behavior of an arbitrary particular solution with a set of solutions of a standard form. What Heisenberg had done was take it farther, using the S-matrix idea to mathematically pick out the most important features of the theory, the ones that he tried to prove wouldn't change over time. He published this work in the German journals. The OSS had a copy of every article. Berg had read, and understood, them all. There was a reason Mo Berg was an agent who was here, listening, assessing, making a decision, a choice. That reason had nothing to do with being a light-hitting infielder for the Chicago White Sox. But the sunlit room was warm with everyone packed in, even with the radiators shut off as Switzerland dealt with its coal shortage. And despite the months of preparation, despite the Beretta taped to his groin, despite the lives that had been put at risk to get him here, despite all that... Mo Berg began to drift off, the S-Matrix discussion so ordinary that it was lulling, his eyelids growing heavy as he jerked awake sharply once, cursing himself for his foolishness, and then again, before resorting to pinching hard the skin between his right thumb and forefinger. That worked, and he was focused again on S-Matrix, at least long enough to get to the question period, where he might learn what he needed to know. Were Heisenberg and his team on the right track for an atomic bomb? Would the Germans get the bomb before the Allies did? If he thought that was the case, Berg would excuse himself, go to the men's room, get into a stall, unbutton his pants and drop them, pull the beretta loose from where it was taped to his groin, rebutton the trousers, and walk back into the room, the beretta in his pocket. Then, with no hesitation, before anyone could act to stop him, he would kill Werner Heisenberg, cut off the head of the snake that was the great bomb. A lot of lives, hundreds of thousands of them, maybe millions, would depend on Berg's aim. He was awake now, and sharp, thinking it through. Ten minutes more, maybe fifteen, and the moment might come as the speech ended and the questions started. Then there was a quick rap at the lecture room door, and everyone watched the door open, and in came a man in a suit, a blond German, missing his right arm, so he was, no doubt, a veteran of one front or another who'd found something useful to do for the local Gestapo or the embassy. They were all watching thirty-six of the brightest minds in European physics outside the missing and brilliant Jews, as the man walked over and handed Heisenberg a note, then clicked his heels officiously, spun around, and walked briskly back out the door. Heisenberg was expressionless, the blank look on his face something he must have mastered after years in service of Hitler. "'Excuse me, please,' he said, and turned his back to the room to read the note. Did his shoulders sag a bit as he finished?' Berg thought maybe so, but Heisenberg was smiling thinly as he turned back to face his audience. Colleagues, I have received information to the effect that Baron von Runstadt's 6th Panzer has broken through at Baston and is racing towards Antwerp. I have been asked to relay this information to you. There is more I would like to say about this turn of events, but this is, of course, neither the time nor the place. And he turned his back to the room again walked over to the chalkboard. There was no Heil Hitler, and instead he started furiously writing formula for the S-Matrix discussion, scribbling on the chalkboard in Zurich while von Rundstedt's tanks rumbled toward Antwerp and the oil tanks filled with fuel that sat there, nearly defenseless, ready to be milked. If this news was right, the war might go on for years, giving Germany time to finish the bomb and build the rockets to deliver it. Well, all the more reason to listen closely for some hint. Any hint. Heisenberg finished and put the chalk into the narrow tray at the bottom of the board before he walked back to the podium for questions. This, Berg hoped, would tell the tale. But it didn't. Paul Scherrer wanted to know about the ADS-CFT correspondence, and Heisenberg went into a long rambling response that amounted to, Well, we'd all like to know the answer to that. Then Vinzel got into a question about the analyticity of the first, and Heisenberg went back to the chalkboard to erase the previous formulae and put up some new ones, talking as he jotted them down, explaining things. There were a lot of nods and murmurs. This went on, but never in the direction that Berg was hoping for. It wasn't going to be that easy. There was, ultimately, no hint of anything else, anything that mattered. Berg left the Beretta taped where it was, and was left in the end to wonder if von Rundstadt's success was enough to require the death of Heisenberg? Maybe. Just maybe. When the questions ended, Heisenberg looked tired but relieved. He thanked everyone, and then Scherer returned to the podium and thanked them all for coming. There would be a reception at 7 p.m. at Scherer's house tonight, 27 Westerstrasse, in District 2, on the west side of the lake. They were all invited. The audience stood and gave Heisenberg another polite round of applause as he exited, and then slowly, chatting with one another all the while, headed for the one open door. It was a slow process. Berg was lost in thought as he ambled slowly in line. He'd heard nothing that had given him a definite reason to pull the trigger, but the question had changed, really, and now he had to factor in a longer war. He needed a little time to think it through. Heisenberg would be at Scherer's party later tonight, and then another reception tomorrow at the German embassy. Heisenberg liked long, contemplative walks, and he'd be coming and going on foot to these social occasions. Berg had two more opportunities to kill him. The first one was tonight, probably in Bacher Park, on Holstrasse, which stood between the Bauer a Hotel and Scherer's home. It would be dark, it would be very easy, and if not there and then, tomorrow would do, but that was trickier in the daylight. That would have to be on a sidewalk encounter, one shot, very clean, and then try to disappear into the crowd. But first, in either case, he had to decide, and he needed a little time to puzzle it through. And it would be good to talk to Heisenberg first somehow, perhaps at tonight's party and get a feel for things, all of it very sociable. And then, maybe, kill him. Berg had never killed a man, but that was what most of his training had been for. That moment. Pull the trigger. Save the world. Maybe. He was just outside the door and into the hallway when he felt a touch on his left shoulder and heard a deep, warm, female voice speaking very quietly. Yes, you must decide, Mo. May I call you Mo? And very soon. So much hangs in the balance, yes? He turned to look at her. She was nearly his height and even more attractive up close, perhaps in her mid-thirties, black hair, not a lot of makeup, some real strength of character showing in how she looked right back at him, assessing him just as he did the same to her. He steered them both out of the queue and down a side hallway, no use pretending. I saw you in Chicago, and then in London, Paris, Rome, now here, what gives? She smiled. And the answer better be a good one, or you'll use that Beretta on me, right, Mo? But only after you've dropped your pants and untaped it. Sometimes you do better, you know, Mo. Sometimes you have untaped it and you're ready to go. So she knew about the Beretta. What the hell? They walked back into the main hall and then quietly, with everyone else, out of the building and on to the Villerstrasse. She chatted briefly about the weather, colder than last year, no? Berg could be patient. She knew way too much and he was about to find things out and there was nothing he liked better than learning. Finally, at the far end of the Hoddington Bridge, near the dark park, they left the crowd behind and alone they stopped to lean on the railing and look at the cold water below. "'ice just starting to form on the rocks that rose above the stream. "'I have something to tell you, Mo,' she said. "'It is very important.' "'Sure,' he said. "'It's important.' "'But they both knew he wasn't about to believe anything,' she said, "'not without establishing who she was and who she worked for. "'I work for a firm that you don't know anything about yet, Mo,' "'she said, reading his mind again. "'And later tonight I'm going to tell you about our firm. "'You won't believe me, of course,' and then I'll prove it to you. I'll also prove that Werner Heisenberg has to die, and soon. Tonight, after the little party at Scherer's house, you must walk with Heisenberg through the park, chatting about the S-Matrix and perhaps the weather. There will be no talk of the war or the super bomb. There in the park, at a spot I will take you by in a few minutes, you must use your Beretta to shoot Heisenberg. It must take three shots to make certain he's dead. The first shot has to be above the left ear. The second, as he begins to crumble, has to be to the back of the head. The third, as he lies there, face up, must go to the forehead. You will be wearing gloves in the cold, so there will be no need to wipe the weapon. You'll simply toss it into the nearby bushes and walk away. Berg stared at her for a few moments. He wished like hell he'd put the beret in his pocket. You know a lot. Too damn much, in fact. I do know a lot, Mo. I know everything in this line, in fact, from this point forward. You, me, Heisenberg, the bomb, lives saved and lives lost. It's all right here in front of me, like reading a newspaper. As long as you stay here. You like reading the newspaper, don't you, Mo? He did, in fact, like reading the newspaper. Liked it so much, he bought two or three each day and read them slowly over coffee in the morning, savoring the easy enjoyment of reading the paper, where everything was solidly black and white, clear-cut, Sharp-edged, clean, very clean. She stared at him, dead serious. Problem is, Mo, there are a lot of pages in those newspapers, and different things are happening on different pages. It's all on the same day, and it's all the news that's fit to print, you know? But certain things have to go in a certain order, or I won't be able to help. He moved to her, pressed himself against her, reaching down to put his right hand over her left one on the bridge railing. A moment of dizziness, and he thought he might go to his knees, but he steadied. Then he thought he could kill her now if he had to, knock her back over the railing and into the water, get the beretta as she lay there, walk down, fire once or twice, and then walk away. She smiled, pressed back with her hips, and looked at him closely. Look up, Mo, and towards the south, back across the bridge. He stared at her. It's all right, Mo, you're the one with the gun taped to his balls. Me? I'm just one of the girls. Go ahead, look up. So he did, and saw in the night sky half a dozen planes of some kind, nearly silent, swift, rushing over Zurich. What are those? German fighters, Mo. Jet fighters. Whole new kind of airplane. Yeah? So You know, Mo, you know very well. Those fighters are better than anything the Allies have. And there's a jet bomber that's in trials right now. A month. Maybe less, and it will be in production. It has a range of 6,000 miles, Mo. You know what that means. He did know. How'd you know those fighters would be there? She was, perhaps, a Nazi. A double agent of some kind. Christ, this was complicated. I've seen them before, Mo, Several times. I've seen the bomber in action, too. I've seen it carry a super bomb, Mo, For 6,000 miles. It was ridiculous, sure. But those fighters... And the stuff she seemed to know. Look, I don't get it. Who the hell are you? I'm someone like you, Mo. Someone who believes in a world that can be better than this one. Someone willing to do what I must to stop this evil before it ruins everything. He pushed against her, harder, squeezing that hand against the railing. Jesus, he was getting worked up by doing this, by pressing against her. Women didn't usually get this kind of a rise out of him. He felt her hips push back against him. She smiled. There's a lot I can't tell you yet, Mo. There's a lot you're going to have to find out for yourself. But we're on the same side, you and me, and I can tell you this. There was a freighter in Lorient two months ago. The Bremen? I know about the Bremen. And the deuterium. But have you been told there was a commando raid and the Bremen was sunk, Mo? How the hell? Yeah, he admitted. That's what I've been told. So no heavy water means no plutonium means no super bomb, at least not anytime soon. It would take another year for them to isolate more. He paused. But if this von Rundstadt thing is true, and there's more time to isolate more deuterium... Now she wasn't smiling. She pushed him back off her and he let it happen, releasing her hand from the bridge rail, pulling back. It's worse than that, Mo. They'd offloaded more than 20 tons of heavy water before the raid. The Germans were happy the Bremen was sunk. It lets the Allies think the Uranviren couldn't make the super bomb. But the Allies were wrong, Mo, Terribly wrong. "'So they can make enough plutonium for a bomb,' he said flatly. "'Yes. Maybe two bombs, Mo. Two of them. Maybe the first for London, and the second for who knows where. New York?' "'It's too late already.' He believed her now. But if this was true, why kill Heisenberg?' "'Certain matters are at a critical point, Mo. At the moment, the bomb they're building is too big to be useful.' It's the size of a boxcar, maybe bigger. And to keep it hidden, it's been built in some caves in Zugsprite. You know where that is, in Bavaria. She said that with certainty. He nodded. Heisenberg is personally working on ways around the problem, Mo. He can't be allowed to succeed. Did Heisenberg even want to succeed? That was the real question, thought Berg. But he didn't voice it. And if I kill Heisenberg, this will end it? The bomb won't be used? The Nazis will finally lose this war? It will slow things down, Mo, And in the world as it is right now, right here, there's a chance. If Rommel doesn't take Cairo, if Patton wheels west and turns for Amsterdam, yes, there's a chance it might end here. But for you, Mo, no, this is not the end of it. He looked at her. I don't know what you mean. What's next? I have to go now, Mo. See? She said, pointing at nothing. A park bench may be over at the edge of the grass. There's a door. I have a deadline I can't possibly be late. She turned to face him, reached up with both hands to hold his face, brought him to her, so close, so very close. "'You're going to like this, Mo. You're going to do important work.' And then she finally kissed him, hard and long, before pulling away and turning to leave him. "'Sure,' he said to her back as her heels clicked against the stone path. "'Sure, it's important work,' he raised his voice. "'Hey, what the hell does that mean? And who the hell are you? I don't even know your name!' She stopped, turned around. "'You'll know everything sometime soon, Mo. "'I promise you, you're important. "'Know that, Mo Berg. "'Know that you're important. "'I'll see you again.' "'Oh, yes, in a way. "'After all, we have a lot to do, you and I.' She turned back again and stepped off the stone path to walk through the brown winter grass and into the darkness of the park. And then she wasn't there. Berg undid his belt and reached down to his groin to pull free the Beretta. There was a brief moment of pain as the athletic tape came free, and then he had the gun and was buttoning up again, putting it in his pocket. The smart thing to do was get to Shearer's house and get back on the job. Find Heisenberg, talk to the man, make a damn decision. But where the hell had that woman gone? He wanted to know. He needed to know, in fact. So he pulled the Beretta back out of his pocket and walked after her, across the cold winter grass and along the route he'd seen her take through some bushes and next to that plane tree. There was a tingle, that dizziness, that moment of nausea, a sense of something electricity in the air, but nothing else. She was gone. No footprints in the grass, no way to guess how she'd departed. Hell. It was cloudy, dark, and the snow was starting to fall. But Shura's house had to lie in that direction, through this little park, and down onto the Seestrasse and on toward the lake. Hadn't the sky been clear a moment ago? Oh, hell. He pulled up his coat collar, shoved the Beretta back into his coat pocket, and started walking. August twelfth, 1944 Moburg and his two pals, Enrico Fermi and Paul Scherer, sat in slat wooden folding chairs at a very shaky wooden table at the Café Maggiore in the Swiss village of Donella. About 200 meters away to the west was the border with Italy, where Mo and Enrico had left their bikes. The act of leaving their bikes behind had pleased both the Italian Carabinieri and the Swiss border guards, who had each barely glanced at Fermi's and Berg's passports before waving them through. It was hard to believe there was a war on. Berg smiled a bit and allowed himself a moment's satisfaction. Here they were, all three with their beer steins in front of them, and Scherer smoking a cigarette, calm and serene as could be, Looking out over Lake Maggiore, with Lucarno visible in the distance across the lake. Blue skies and sunshine. A light, cool breeze.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else,
2: including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like
0: me.
4: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: Off the lake to cut the summer heat as the three men, two of them among the world's finest physicists and one mediocre baseball player, discussed how to save the world. They were the only patrons at the little café, and the owner, who was the waiter and also the cook, had brought them their beer and gone back to make their sandwiches, so they felt free to talk almost openly. Thank you both for coming. I know it was a difficult journey, but I have news of a certain opportunity. Something involving Heisenberg, Mo asked. The information must be good, or Scherer wouldn't have gone to so much trouble. Yes, my old friend Werner. He's being allowed to visit with us in a few months. You're joking, said Fermi. Germany would never allow such a thing. Hitler himself would have to know and would never allow Werner to travel. I thought so myself, Enrico, for the longest time. But then one of my students, a brilliant young woman of all things, pointed out that we could play to Hitler's vanity. So we concocted a seminar series and asked Werner to come be our first speaker at the ETH. And this worked? Berg asked incredulous. Scherer smiled. I brought you something to see he said as he took a final drag of his cigarette and stubbed it out in the clay ashtray and reached into the front inside pocket of his jacket. For a second, Berg thought Scherer might be reaching for a weapon, but that was silly. They were all friends here, right? And indeed, it was simply a letter, still in its envelope, though that had been opened. Scherer handed it to Berg and said, ''Open it, my friend. It's from Werner Heisenberg.'' Berg cut the top of the envelope wide and pulled out the letter. It was a letter written in ink in a very nice hand in German, of course. Berg read it aloud in low tones, but loud enough that Fermi could hear. "'My dear Paul, I hope this finds you well and safe and healthy in your comfortable surroundings in Zurich. Life here is sometimes difficult, as you might imagine, with the war dragging on and the occasional worries over Allied bombing. We are safe enough here at the moment, away from anything that might be thought a worthy target of Mr. Churchill or Mr. Truman's aircraft, but I do worry over my family's safety.' We must all make our sacrifices for the fatherland, but I would happily risk my own life to safeguard those of my wife and children. I am grateful that Herr Hitler has, twice now, allowed me to keep my family with me as we moved our Uranverin facilities from place to place to find a secure facility where we can work. It is grueling work, as you must know, and demands a great deal of my thought and energy. But I have, from time to time, done some interesting maths to advance the S-Matrix work, and so I am delighted to report to you that not only do I have something interesting to say at your little gathering, but Herr Hitler has personally endorsed my speaking to your group in Zurich in December. So I thank you most deeply for the invitation, and am happy to report that I shall be able to attend. I am looking forward to seeing you and all my old friends in Switzerland, and at the eidgenossisches Technisch Hochschule, where I am sure much interesting work has been done during these unfortunate times. I look forward to hearing from you and your colleagues, and I hope that you will find what I have to say of some small interest. Elizabeth and the children were delighted to be invited, but will be unable to attend. They do say hello and wish you and your family the best. Christine especially hopes to see your little Lucia sometime soon, and in a better, more peaceful world. I will see you in a few months, my friend, and I look forward to that meeting with greatest anticipation. Berg looked up, and he signs it, Varner. He sat back and looked at Fermi, who was shaking his head in disbelief. And then they both looked at Scherer, who was smiling broadly. "'How did you do this, Paul?' Berg wanted to know. "'Heisenberg? In Zurich? In the middle of a war? How did you even manage to contact him to make such a request?' "'Paul,' Fermi added, leaning over the table, "'you must know Werner every bit as well as I do. You must know what this means. He must have intended the implications of this letter. Surely you agree.' Scherer's smile faded. Yes, Enrico, of course. And so we must take advantage of this opportunity, as Werner no doubt would wish us to do. Take advantage, asked Berg. He's got a target on his back, gentlemen, and it's been there since the start of the war. You think he means to offer himself up at this get-together you've planned? Why would he do such a thing? To tell us, to make it clear to us, that Germany does not have the super-bomb and will not build it. That could be Werner's motive, said Fermi. He leaned forward, his hands open, expressive. "'Spero ci sia cosi. I hope it is so.' Berg nodded. "'Yeah, that might be it.' There was a rumbling in the distance, the low sound of engines, several of them working in unison, slowly drawing closer. That would make sense if he was doing what you two think he's doing, finding ways to stall the creation of that super-bomb, pushing the development of it in the wrong direction. The rumbling grew closer, the vibrations from it rattling the crockery on the table, the plates vibrating, the silverware jiggling in place— A tank column coming down the road? That's what it sounded like. The proprietor, Gianluca, came out and looked up, pointed. Once a day lately. Four in the afternoon, like clockwork. They looked up, and the bulbous nose appeared over the hill behind them, and then grew to include the entire zeppelin flying low an enormous thing, a giant when seen this close. It was the Hindenburg. Safely interned by the neutral Swiss, and renamed the Wilhelm Tell... She was still the pride of the German people, the mighty airship that had found safety here on the very day the Americans and the English declared war on Germany. It was an enormous airship. Berg knew the basics. It was capable of carrying a payload of half a million pounds, double that if one wanted to risk the dangers of using hydrogen instead of helium. It was more than 800 feet long, had a cruising speed of 75 miles per hour and a range of an incredible 10,000 miles. Built in 1936, it made regular two-day crossings of the Atlantic between Frankfurt and New York, less than half the time the best ocean liners could manage and in greater comfort. He wasn't surprised to see her flying so low. The Hindenburg was known for flying just a few hundred feet up. It made for a great view for the passengers and impressed the hell out of those on the ground as they watched the huge thing go by with its giant swastikas on the side and on the tail. Or at least that's how it had been for her before the war. Since then, she'd been interned in neutral Switzerland. She no longer carried the Nazi banner. Now she was flying with giant red crosses on her, the deal with Hitler being that the Swiss would let her fly, and with her German crew, as long as the paint job was Swiss. By God, she was really something. He gaped along with Fermi and Scherer as she passed overhead and made her way across the lake towards Lucarno. And then, once she was gone, the three men got down to making some plans for December in Zurich. Before the afternoon ended and Moen and Rico had wandered back into Italian Republic and picked up their bicycles, they had an idea of what to do, and more importantly, how to do it. December 12, 1944 Paul Shearer's home was a lakefront two-story chalet across the Seestrasse Boulevard from Reither Park, with its woods and playing fields. Burke had spent a couple of weeks with Shearer and his family back in mid-October and came to very much like Ilse, Schurer's wife and the real master of the house. He also liked the three children, all girls ranging from 8 to 14. By the end of those two weeks, he'd put the family onto his mental list of people he would have to save from Hitler's anger if push came to shove on this Heisenberg thing. Fermi and his family were already on the list, so, with a deep internal smile, Berg was starting to think the list of his favorite physicists' list. Heisenberg was not a favorite. Moe walked up the long driveway. It was snowing hard now, an inch or two on the ground already, and a lot more to come looked like. There were half a dozen cars parked on the grass to the side, showing off Zurich's relative wealth even during this war. A couple of Bugattis and a Mercedes spoke of the presence of some local politicians and leading businessmen. Some lesser Renaults and Citrons probably belonged to young professors still looking for tenure. Berg was about to knock on the door when Janine... The eight-year-old beat him to it. Mr. Berg, she said with delight and came to him for a hug. She was the most delightful of the three charming daughters. So, how wonderful to see you, Janine, he said, hugging her back. How are your sisters and your mother? She laughed. You're so silly, Mr. Berg. Amelia's fine, and she's the only sister I have, and she's nearly eleven, so there's no talking with her, really. And mother is fine, too, and father, and they're so happy you're here, and so am I. She prattled on a little longer, taking him by the hand and leading him into the house, presumably to meet the host before she would let go of him. Well, that was fine, but what was this thing about just having one sister? He knew firmly there were three. Was his memory wrong? He'd seen his father slip away into dementia, and he didn't like considering the implications of these doubts about himself. Just nerves, perhaps, and that he decided he could handle— Firmly in tow behind Janine, he rounded a corner, and there was Paul Scherer, and beside him, Ilse. Hellos and handshakes and hugs and polite kisses on the cheeks all around, and soon Janine was back with her sister, and the adults were talking, mostly about nothing but the weather and the children, since most topics of interest were off-limits in a group like this. And there was certainly a Gestapo agent or two in the crowd, along with several admitted Nazi sympathizers like Weissucker By the way, our mutual friend is here was all sure had to say after the small talk ended. I do believe he's out in the back room, the one with the view of the lake. Berg nodded, took his friend's hand again, very knowingly, since they both knew it might be the last time they'd see each other, and then left the shearers and walked past the likes of Gregor Wenzel and Ernest Stuckelbrook, nodding and saying hello, but moving, moving toward the far room, the one with the view of the lake, the one with Heisenberg. August 23rd, 1943. Wild Bill Donovan was setting up a special kind of operation, a unit filled with people who would risk their lives for their country working behind enemy lines, finding things out, causing trouble for the enemy. What he had in mind for Mo Berg was work in Europe, dangerous work. He needed someone who could speak all those damn languages, someone with nerves, someone smart, someone with some physical skills and the willingness to do what had to be done. Was Mo Berg that man Donovan wanted to know? Sure he was. Sign me up, he said to Donovan after a half-hour conversation, and when do I start? But it wasn't that simple. It would be best to finish the baseball season and then disappear into the woodwork, quietly, unobserved. observed. Could Mo do that? Could he play ball for both the White Sox and his country? Could he finish things out in September and then go into training in October and probably be in action by the spring? Sure he could. Sign me up, he said again to Donovan, and so it was. But if the plan was to keep it quiet, Mo failed at that. Flush with his new calling, filled with self-confidence, the old Moe faded away into the rainy days of August, and a new, bolder Mo Berg was playing first base now for the Sox. A Moe who was hitting a ton, who was making picks at first, was running the bases like a madman. Freedom from worry was a wonderful thing, and Moe tore the cover off the ball for the last five weeks of the season, hitting 342 and playing great defense. He led the White Sox in a climb from fourth place to third and then to second in the American League. Hell, still five games back at the end of the season, but in the last month, Mo Berg, baseball player, went from has-been to a hot item. Manager Jimmy Dykes professed loudly that he loved Moe's heart and his determination. General Manager Harry Grabner praised Moe and swore he wouldn't trade him, then attempted to make a deal with the Senators. This was not exactly how Donovan wanted it to go, since it brought attention to Moe. But that that was all right In the off-season, most people would forget baseball. There was, after all, a war going on. A hell of a war, what with Rommel revitalizing North Africa back to Tobruk and knocking on the door of Cairo, and Germany launching those damn rockets at London, the Luftwaffe's new jet aircraft regaining air superiority over Europe. Things were teetering. There were a lot of people, important people, saying it was time for an armistice with Hitler so America could concentrate on the Japanese where the war was going better since the cakewalk at Tinian. Wild Bill was not interested in talking peace with Hitler. Wild Bill knew what most Americans didn't. The Nazis were working on a super bomb, and with jets and rockets and those new larger U-boats, they had a way to deliver one if they got the damn bomb built. If that happened, the Japanese wouldn't matter. Opie told him time and again, if the Germans got the bomb first, nothing mattered. The war was over, and the good guys lost. Mo Berg... Spy, and the key to it all, really found himself on the fast track. December 12th, 1944 Moe got caught in two brief conversations as he worked his way toward the back room, but he had to stay quiet and unobtrusive, blend in, so he chatted about the S-Matrix and then about the weather, and then finally he got to the double doors at the back of the chalet that opened up into the add-on back room. One of the doors was open, and he walked through it, and there... At the window at the back of the room, the window with the great view of Lake Zurich, was Werner Heisenberg, chatting with several people, smiling, nodding his head. One of those people was a woman. Was THE woman. Moe's mysterious friend from the past two years in the conversation from a couple of hours ago. It was her he was sure of it, though she was dressed differently now, more elegant, less business. Her hair piled up and a smart little hat on top of that. There were long earrings and red lipstick and padded shoulders putting on the Ritz. Damn, she was a knockout. He walked toward the little group. The woman saw him coming, smiled, looked at her watch. Werner, dear, here's the man I was telling you about, the Italian physicist who worked with Fermi, Mario Antonacci. Then she turned to Mo, offered her hand. So good to see you, Mario. I'm so happy you were able to come. Heisenberg reached out and took Mo's hand in his own. It is a great pleasure, Herr Professor. As you must know, I am a good friend and great admirer of your colleague, Professor Fermi. I had hoped he might be able to attend this weekend. I was with him just a few weeks ago, Professor, Moe was able to say truthfully. He'd hoped to be present, but with the political situation as it is... Moe shrugged. Heisenberg nodded. Of course, Professor. These are difficult times for us all. Berg felt a hand on his shoulder. That flash of stomach-turning disorientation. It was the woman... And she was putting a hand on Heisenberg's shoulder as well. Boys, she said with a little laugh, time enough for small talk later. Right now I was hoping to take the two of you outside. She took a look at her watch again. I'm told we're going to see quite a sight in the next few minutes. A very special visit from an old friend of mine. Would you come with me, both of you, please? There was nothing to do but follow as the woman took them both by the hand and walked toward the doors that led out to the backyard of the chalet, where a path led to a wooden walkway that, in turn, led out to a dock. No boats were tied up this time of year, but no ice on the water yet either. The night was warm for December, well above freezing. They walked out onto the dock, the three of them alone, the house behind them dimly lit, quiet, as the sharers prepared for bed and the servants finished cleaning up the remnants of the small dinner party. A cloudless, moonless night, and a few wartime lights made for a beautiful sky, the Milky Way arching across in full glory, a reminder in its own way of the hell that was nighttime bombing. There was a distant rumble, a rhythmic beat to it, a deep cadence that Berg remembered from a few months ago. Engines. Big 1,200-horsepower Dahmer-Benz diesels. Four of them. Sixteen-cylinder behemoths driving the great beast forward. The Hindenburg. The Wilhelm Tell. The great dark shadow of it emerged from the east over the alpine ridges to the back of the lake. Low in the sky, as always, it seemed to take forever to finally clear the ridgeline and establish itself in its full glory. It came toward them, slowing, slowing, and then, no more than one hundred feet above their heads, a huge thing, nearly three football fields long, easing to a stop, the roar of the engines quieting to an idle. Directly above the three of them... Was the Führer the control car where the crew did its work, the passengers and the cargo were inside the envelope? She's magnificent, isn't she, Mo? The woman asked. I told you you'd see her again. You never mentioned the Hindenburg. Mo said, and took his eyes off the huge shape above him and turned to look at the woman. She was holding a gun. Mo's gun, the Beretta. He reached into his pocket and wasn't surprised to find it not there. You know this has to be, Mr. Berg, said Heisenberg, walking over to stand next to her, admitting he knew who Mo really was. Tomorrow morning at the Eagle's Nest, Herr Hitler and the others, Göring, Hess, von Braun, Goebbels, Hauser, Messerschmitt, Ribbentrop, Himmler, and more will be gathered to meet with me as I return from Zurich aboard the Hindenburg. Hitler has made an announcement. He plans to tell them that the super-bomb is ready, that Messerschmitt has a plane that can deliver it, He plans to introduce me and I will explain how the bomb works and the damage it will do to London and how we are building three more of these super bombs, these atomic bombs. So killing you now is too late. I get that, said Berg. No, mo," the woman said. In about five minutes, they're going to lower a ladder down from the control car. We're going to help Herr Heisenberg get on that ladder and climb up to the control car. Then we're going to watch the Hindenburg leave, heading for the border, and then the eagle's nest. We're not going to stop him. Heisenberg shrugged. No, I don't think so, Mr. Berg. There are no bombs made of the size the Führer thinks there are. There is only one bomb, and we have that, and it's enormous. It weighs nearly twenty of your tons. It is the size of a train car. There is no way for a plane or rocket to deliver such a weapon. It's already built? Jesus, game was over then. And then it dawned on Moberg Berg. Spy. The game was nearly over, yes, heading into the ninth. But if that bomb... That bomb is in the Hindenburg? It's in there right now? The woman and Heisenberg both nodded. There was a creak from just above, and then a bang as a hatch slammed open and then was tied off. A ladder started inching down from that hatch. The great hulk of the Zeppelin was only 20 feet above them now, surreal in its enormity, silver in the darkness, with only a single flashlight coming from the control car illuminating the ladder, aluminum, as it cranked slowly down. And you're taking it to the eagle's nest. Yes, Mo, he is. There's a crew of volunteers in there. The super bomb is in the hold. The gas cells filled with hydrogen for extra lift. Tomorrow, about noon... They'll reach the Eagle's Nest and tie off at the landing tower. Professor Heisenberg will exit the Zeppelin. Herr Hitler and the others will be at the landing pad to meet the creator of the Great Bomb, and they expect to board the Hindenburg and see more of the bombs brought to them safely through neutral Switzerland. Instead, instead the trigger will spring and the enriched uranium will reach critical mass and this war will come to an end. My God... The ladder touched down on the wooden dock. Werner Heisenberg took Mo Berg's hand to steady himself and then up, with Berg's help, got his foot into the first rung of the ladder. Berg held the ladder steady and the woman came over to help. Their hands met on the ladder as Heisenberg started climbing, and Mo felt that now familiar nausea, the moment of disorientation. He knew to take a look toward the house. The lights were back on, a crowd again visible through the curtains. Did anyone miss Heisenberg? Was there another Heisenberg in there? Was this Heisenberg still here? Moe looked up and Heisenberg was already at the control car, hands reaching down to help him through the hatchway. The woman was gone. Moe's Beretta was back in his pocket, and he knew that here, now, it had never been taken. Someone was shouting. Moe felt the ladder being yanked upward out of his hands up into the belly of the beast. That was all right, and he was sure of it. He was dead certain that it was all right, what Heisenberg had in mind. The shouts were closer, footsteps crunching through the few inches of snow that now covered the ground. The lake was frozen. It was very cold. Two men were coming, running, one ahead of the other. The first was Weissacker, waving a pistol. A Luger, shouting something in German about stopping. Stop the Zeppelin, you must stop the Zeppelin. Behind him was Paul Shearer, trying to catch up, yelling something himself. Karl, don't shoot! Do not shoot! The hydrogen! The hydrogen!' So they knew, or at least Scherer did. No surprise there. Moe reached into his pocket and pulled out the Beretta. Weisacker was a good thirty yards away. It would take a very lucky shot. Weisacker stopped running and stood there, pulling a loaded magazine out of his coat pocket and fumbling with it as he loaded the Luger. There was an audible click as the magazine catch snapped into place. Scherer reached him, grabbed his arm, and Weisacker turned and shoved him away and shot him, close range, no more than five feet away. Scherer spun once and fell. Moe Berg had taken a first in marksmanship in his training, though that was with the Colt 45. Still, he'd spent two days at the Scherer's house a couple of months ago, standing right near this very dock in some other reality a long way from this one, target shooting with the Beretta so he could shoot and kill a Nazi. Okay, here was the chance. He took aim as Weissacker turned to back around and fumbled with pulling the toggle joint in the rear of the Luger to bring a round into the chamber. That took two seconds, and then he pointed the Luger at the Hindenburg, and died there, a hole made by the bullet from Mo Berg's Beretta appearing above his left ear. Mo walked over briskly, clouds of vapor from his suddenly heavy breathing wreathing him as he reached Weissecker, who had fallen to his knees but still seemed to be alive. The man had shot Paul Shearer. Mo put the second shot into the back of his head, and as Weissecker fell onto his side and then rolled dead onto his back, Mo put one more shot for good measure into the Nazi's forehead, and suddenly it was very quiet. Mo could hear the crunching of snow as someone else approached. He looked up, and it was, of course, the woman. She knelt over Scherer, who was moaning. The bullet went through the flesh of the forearm. Not much blood. He's very lucky, she said. But I suppose his pitching career is over, right, Mo? Shera wasn't wearing a coat. It had all happened too fast for that. She tore away a long sleeve from a shirt to get a strip of cloth to tie around the wound. You're very funny, Mo said. She rose to her feet. A number of people were coming, but they had a few seconds before help for Shera arrived. You know, Mo, in some of the scenarios you never get to Europe. What? Yes, it's true. Sometimes you're a ball player, and sometimes you're a lawyer, and sometimes you're living at home with your sister, alone, reading your newspapers, afraid of the world. Not afraid, really. That's not what it's about. Behind him, the engines roared to life and the zeppelin moved out over the lake towards Lucarno and tomorrow towards Berchtesgaden, and by noon to do something real, something that mattered. "'It's all very uncertain, Mo,' she said, smiling. He shook his head. A moment like this, and she's making Heisenberg jokes. "'Mo,' she said, "'there's a place where you're a catcher for the senators.' "'Oh, God forbid!' But in all these places, all these myriad possibilities, you're reachable. You move through the frames easily, and you always get the job done. You know, I'm not stupid. Quite the contrary, Mo. Your intelligence, your languages, that and your ability to move through the frames, that's why we need you. But I have to admit, I'm not real sure what's going on here. The crowd from the party had reached them. People were kneeling over Sherer, trying to help... Looking fascinated and horrified at the bloody mess that had been Karl Weissacker. Okay, Mo said. I get it. Count me in. She smiled at him, reached out to take him by the arm, and then, after the nausea, after the moment of dizziness, the two of them, Mo Berg and the woman, alone on the lake shore, walked into the quiet darkness of a strangely warm December night in Zurich. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is
2: Rick's. Rick, thank you so much for that. Listen, have a fantastic festive holiday and a very productive and well new year. There you go, sir. Next up is our very own David Raiklin with a little festive movie soundtracks fact article, sir.
4: David! Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction, music, sound effects and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raikland. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. Season's greetings, everyone. This time, the Science Fiction Soundtrack Show will visit science fiction holiday music. Music from films and TV shows that are set in and around the holidays and breathe of the spirits of the season. And there's lots of spirits for this season. We're going to be listening to Kwanzaa and Hanukkah, Christmas and New Year's Eve. All of these are sometimes spectacularly memorialized and fantasized upon in film and TV. And we're going to start with a weird and wonderful Christmas on Warehouse 13. This is from the second season with its award-winning theme song and soundtrack, music by Edward Rogers. Here, the blending of styles, the mix of mystery and detective and science fiction and horror that got a lot of attention for the the soundtrack, it's a, a, a real eclectic sound, now also has Christmas carols and a bit of Tchaikovsky. Here it is, Christmas at the Warehouse by Edward Rogers. Christmas at the Warehouse from Warehouse 13, music by Edward Rogers. you probably heard bits of Joy to the World, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies, and the main Warehouse 13 theme, all of them given a festive holiday orchestration. It features orchestral bells or chimes that are done live. This is one of Edward's favorite things to do at live percussion to the electronics. It brings the whole soundtrack alive. If you listened carefully at the end, you heard sleigh bells, those are a sure way to evoke the holiday spirit. Now let's see how Doctor Who evokes the holiday spirit in the episode called A Christmas Carol. This is a retelling of the Dickens' tale in science fiction terms and Doctor Who terms. And they take some liberties with it, but it's one of the highest-rated episodes in the history of the series. features music by Murray Gold, who's been the go-to composer for the new Doctor Who series. This is an opportunity for him to write a Christmas carol, and it's performed by Catherine Jenkins. She's a terrific Welsh soprano who has a blossoming career as a crossover artist singing classical and pop music, and here she made her acting debut. She's awakened from cryogenic sleep and sings Abigail's Song. It's beautiful. Music by Murray Gold, Abigail's Song. The Doctor Who Christmas Carol episode, Abigail's Song, music by Murray Gold, performed by Catherine Jenkins and the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Ben Foster. So kind of a Welsh production all around there on the music. For the last several years, Doctor Who has been going to Wales to get their orchestral scores performed, and Ben Foster has been helping with the orchestrations. Catherine Jenkins, what a wonderful, rich voice. She's got a great career ahead of her as a classical pop crossover artist quite a place to introduce a song is on Doctor Who. Not a very science fiction-y song. In fact, except for the, the violin line that has tropes that evoke mystery or symbolize wonder, it's really kind of traditional dramatic song score. And that makes sense. Science fiction has now evolved where we can go between the experimental orchestration and electronics, far-out sounds and more traditional dramatic scoring, depending on where it's most appropriate. How about a fantasy film? Let's take a listen to how Father Christmas is portrayed in The Chronicles of Narnia, score by Harry gregson Williams. This is fantasy, and the music doesn't have the far-out approach either, but it does have a galloping rhythm to evoke the sleigh and percussion to give it a bit of fairy dust sparkle, and beautiful choral writing. In fact, Harry Grigson Williams used to be a choir boy in a very prestigious English choir, so he has an uh, innate ability to write effectively for voices. And I think it's a beautiful piece of fantasy Christmas writing, Father Christmas. holiday music in the Hollywood tradition, from the Chronicles of Narnia, Father Christmas, music by Harry gregson Williams, and by the London Symphony and Chorus Performing. That's where he records most of his scores, like the other media venture composers in uh, London. This is at a key moment in the film, where the long winter begins to end, and the redemption of the heroes can begin with the appearance of Santa. So, wonderful bit of fantasy holiday music, and let's segue into another fantasy film, this time a animated classic from Steven Spielberg, his first, and Don Bluth of Secret of Nym fame. This is an American tale, a story of Hanukkah and a Jewish family of mouses, mice, that have to emigrate from Russia to the United States and the film opens on Hanukkah and this is that opening title music by James Horner he of Avatar and Titanic fame this is also a tuneful score and he uses modal writing modal means using scales and melodies that have a characteristic sound in this case ethnic Jewish and Russian also use of solo violin helps convey the time and place main title from American Tale. main title to An American Tale, a holiday fantasy featuring music that evokes both Hanukkah and Russia, and James Horner makes use of that minor mode, that melodic sense that evokes both of those cultures, and the lush Hollywood orchestration that brings those melodies into the realm of fantasy. Now let's take a look at another holiday that's celebrated all around the world, Kwanzaa, but it's probably never been celebrated like this before with a rapping robot there's a touch of comedy and satire in here and i hope that everyone understands that this is all in good spirits and because science fiction comedy is rare so this really is quite exceptional
1: no child that's not a made-up character it's kwanzaa but and i'm gonna tell
2: y'all how we celebrate kwanzaa zoe bird lay down a beat Basic principles that go to make up Kwanzaa. So sit your asses down and have some Nadas dropped the Ponza.
1: the wrist. Sit back
2: down.
1: There's
4: gonna be a test.
1: My favorite Sujama, cooperative
4: economics. Kwanzaa Bot rapping about Kwanzaa from the Futurama episode Bender's Big Score. It features the songwriting and vocal talents of Coolio. The great rap star made most of his hits from songs written for movies. For example, Gangster Paradise was written for Dangerous Minds. Here we have a humorous comedy song that helps with our science fiction fantasy celebration of the holiday season. Now let's turn to something a bit more serious and epic. This is a New Year's Eve celebration that's perhaps the greatest and most significant thing to ever happen on New Year's Eve in the world of science fiction and fantasy. The Time Machine. The time traveler takes his first journey forward into the future on New Year's Eve, 1899. And here we're going to listen to the score from the 1960 George Powell interpretation of The Time Machine with music by Russell Garcia. This cue is called It Became Intoxicating. Music from The Time Machine, score by Russell Garcia. This is the first scene where we travel forward in time, and the cue has two sections to it. The first is sweeping, epic music that might be suitable for Lawrence Arabia, although this was written before that. And then it turns into classic idiomatic time travel music with uh, tick-tocking rhythms and sparkling percussion. It's a wonderful score, and uh, Russell Garcia gives us a a sense of New Year's Eve along with the adventure there. He himself had an amazing, charmed life. He was a self-taught musician. He was born in California, worked in the Hollywood studios, then he traveled the world and ended up in New Zealand. But that's a tale for another occasion. And now, for our final holiday selection, this time we're going to go to a really unexpected place. The science fictional town of Eureka, And a couple of years back, they had a wonderful Christmas special. Bear McCurry arranged Christmas songs. Some of them were done instrumentally, and some were sung by the incomparable Rhea Yarbrough. She's the amazing voice behind all the Battlestar Galactica episodes that have that haunting female voice that weaves throughout the action and characters. She's also quite a jazz singer, as you can hear for yourself in her interpretation of Yourself a Merry Little Christmas music by Ralph Blaine and Hugh Martin. The song originally appeared in Meet Me in St. Louis. This arrangement by Bear McCreary and sung by the wonderful Rhea Yarbrough, who really makes the song her own. It appeared in the Oh Little Town episode of Eureka. And there is a science fiction touch in the orchestration, a bit of mystery and eeriness there towards the end and also at the beginning. All of these songs that you heard today are available online. So from Science Fiction Soundtrack, we all wish you the merriest Christmas, the happiest new year, the most wonderful holiday season, wherever and whenever in the universe you celebrate. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction, fantasy, video game, TV soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Contact me, David Rakeland at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. Be sure to check out my blog at com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners.
2: And a big old Merry Christmas to you, Squire. David, thank you so much. It's lovely getting your shows on Starship Sofa. Thank you so much. Like I say, Merry Christmas and a fantastic New Year. Now, did a little interview with Ben Cheney. And like I mentioned, and I will not give too much away. it's all in the interview. Ben has wrote a book that has got some amazing artwork in there as well. So, Ben, Ben Cheney on the line. Thank you so much for coming on to Starship Sofa. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, Ben, what what I quite like about it is you got in touch with us, you know, and said you've got a new book out. But the the nice thing or the thing that caught my eye is that you actually did the artwork for this as well. So just before we get in, just tell us a little bit what your book's called and then we'll we'll get into some more things about this new fantastic book.
5: Okay. Well uh my book is called Son of Sidonia. It's um set in the year twenty eighty AD. And um I sort of written I wrote it to be uh more of like a historical fiction of the future kind of feel. Like I wanted the the world to feel like as as though uh National Geographic could send in a team and like actually do like a realistic story on any of these people be they whether they live in the slums or in the in the middle of the futuristic Blade Runner mega city that's on the the, the doorstep. But it's also uh just very very character driven and um wanted the, the whole world to be immersive and told through the eyes of the characters rather than just uh, being all based on plot, which a lot of sci-fi tends to be very just plot-driven. Like this is uh, just much more trying to get people to feel every part of society from the lowest to the low, who, the people who live in the slums barely scraping by to people in the, the upper echelons of government trying to keep uh, the wheels from coming off.
2: Was that always when you first started to write this, Ben? Was that always like it had to be like that? It had to be kind of, you know, character driven?
5: Uh, Yeah, very much so. It Actually, uh, oddly enough, it started when I, um, I wanted to do, I was trying to be a concept artist for video games and movies. Like that's where my artistic training comes from. And I wanted to do an environment painting wherein uh, I featured a character prominently as well as an environment because usually you do this separate you do them separately you do like a character or you do an environment painting I wanted to do them both and I ended up with this picture of uh, a young boy uh, who's ended up being my main character Matteo who's uh, really frail sick and weak kind of like someone you uh, someone you could see in Somalia like a 12 year old Somalian boy but uh, in the background there was a the gigantic, idealistic, you know, high-rise future that we all think about with the flying cars and Fifth Element and things like that. And uh, for some reason, that image just stuck in my head because uh, it seemed uh, very relevant, especially, I mean, there are places like that now, but just lacking the the sci-fi accoutrement, like uh, the Darabi slums in Mumbai and India. Like, they literally have walls separating... uh, one of the largest slums on the planet called Darabi from some of the highest, most expensive private residences on the planet. And like, I wanted to see what this division of wealth could actually look like with all sorts of other factors of just how our current behavior and economy and the global warming and things like that, what, where all these consequences would lead us, but also just tell like a really exciting, like sci-fi version of that.
2: I mean, that is one of the kind of main things that caught me. Right? It's a very powerful image, that, you know, what you've got for your front of your book. So are you saying you actually you, you drew that, that picture there? Then the, the actual story came after all that?
5: Uh, well, yeah, uh, the original illustration was very similar to the cover illustration, but the, the cover I finished after I actually wrote the entire book. So, um, But yes, that, that central image, which is actually how chapter one starts, it was with uh, the young boy on the rooftop looking at the city, is is very much just the theme image of the whole thing that's where everything grew out from
2: and like you said you know i mentioned like in the beginning you you did all the artwork for this is did you want to kind of sprinkle it out with artwork or was that one of your goals as well you know like yes i wanted I'm, I'm going to be a writer but by god i'm going to get my art in there as well
5: <laughs> well uh like i said i'm a, i started as an artist and um I went to Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah, Georgia in the States and um, studied sequential art, which is like comic books and visual storytelling and concept art and script writing as well. So uh, it just seemed logical, like once I decided once and for all to, I wanted to write stories rather than just illustrate other people's stories, that, uh, that I should create concept art for it. And um, just to really help round out the world, and I come from more, much more of like a uh, video game, movie, TV kind of storytelling background and fandom than uh, the traditional, you know, hardcore uh, sci-fi readership. So, um, So treating it like one of those properties seemed very logical. Like I wanted to create the concept art and have it feel like as though I was pitching a story to Hollywood or... Just to really see what the world looked like for myself, you know, and that, that seems to have really helped me out quite a bit to, like I said, introduce people to the world and, and very gratifying for myself to be able to just see these images come out and I don't know, cause it even surprises you, you know, when you start painting something, you don't know quite what it's going to end up looking like much the same with writing.
2: So tell us about the actual the physical book then Ben. How how have you got that? You know is it a kind of high quality paperback or how do you get the the artwork in that's what I'm interested to find out.
5: Oh okay. Um well the book itself is just a traditional novel at this point. Uh with the the cover art obviously on the front. But uh it is available in uh ebook in several different formats. It's on Kindle, iTunes bookstore, Nook, Kobo and the uh, Sony Reader I believe as well as uh, Smashwords with the DRM free. And it's available in paperback as well on uh, Amazon via print-on-demand.
2: Right. right well i went over actually to amazon and, and tripped myself to a little digital copy there so i'm looking forward to, to actually reading that and on your bio as well ben like you say have you just like stepped away from all kind of work and now you're a full full-time writer you had like a, a job in the kind of the gaming industry and you've have you left all that behind and you just taken the one big leap into the unknown <laughs>
5: well i have taken a leap into the unknown but uh I didn't listen to the advice when people told me to not quit my day job, and uh, it's it has not been easy. Like there, there was no Cinderella story to (laughs) whisk me away off to the clouds. You know, I'm still kind of living hand to mouth and trying to make things work. You know, but uh, you know, would I do it all over again? Absolutely, I would. That quitting that job resulted in the happiest six months of my life. Just working for myself, writing the book, and absolutely believing in what I was doing. And it seems to have paid off, at least in the, the modest readership that I've been fortunate enough to cultivate so far.
2: So when did you kind of come with the story? Because I've, I'm sure I've read somewhere that you've kind of been working on this book for, say, six years. So mm-hmm. there, must, there must have come a time where you thought, you know, if I don't do the jump now you know, it's never going to get finished. Was, exactly. was, that, was that like, the, the, say, the six months ago, and you thought, that's it, I'll have to go?
5: Yeah, that was June 2012. It was just, uh, I was working for this uh, little company, just making these just little apps and things that are, you know, the microtransactions and just, like, convincing people to constantly feed money into it. And it just it never really, it did not seem like the reason why, you know, why I became passionate about any of this as a child, you know, like why I wanted to tell stories or it, it just was I found myself in a position that looked like somebody else's dream job. It was like, you know, it felt like I just needed to go after what I wanted. And, you know, and finally ask myself the question if I believe in this or not, you know, and the answer was yes. It was a resounding yes. So that was it was just time to go.
2: I honestly like good on you to kind of make that decision. Do you know what I mean? Because it'd be so it it is so easy. Do you know what I mean to kind of just stay stay behind the kind of closeted walls of like Easyville. Do you know what I mean? And just keep on plodding on. But actually, to to step outside and just to put all your kind of faith in your your own little creation there. You know what I mean? Well done. That's um, it's actually quite inspiring, Ben.
5: Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> not that I would do it, mind you. you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you have to be kind of, you know, one one penny short of a pound as well to kind of just think, I'm going to do it. Do you know what I mean? And I don't care what the wife <laughs> says.
5: <laughs> yep. It's a fine line between bravery and foolishness.
2: <laughs> why? But I'm interested. Why set it, you know, like in 2080? You know what I mean? Why, why not take it? you know, totally into science fiction well into the future? Why did you kind of want to just have it basically on our doorstep, this story?
5: Because I just, I really wanted that immediacy of it. Like, uh, I think some of the best science fiction feels very familiar and very foreign at the same time. And I think the social commentary of what I was trying to do was better served by having much more familiar than foreign. But also enough foreign and enough, like, fun action sequences and things that could be sequences in video games or, you know, just the, the Hollywood pop culture kind of pacing to it that, uh, would attract people's attention. And then once they're there, they're in a familiar enough place to just wonder enough about their own world and start imagining things like very much inspired by science fiction properties that, uh, like, like for instance, like Star Trek and things that, uh, we're able to inspire big leaps in society and uh, technology primarily like you can see the ipad in early star trek episodes And I figured why shouldn't science fiction be able to do that
2: you've got you've got this one done there now where where does it, where do you go from now do you, do you go back and get a full-time proper job or you have you got plans for the future
5: well uh, a full-time job is imminently necessary at the moment <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I've been working uh, freelance illustration and graphic design and things, kind of get scraping by with that. But uh, as far as the book goes and continuing on with the dream, uh, there's very much a sequel in the works. And um, I've also been trying to hit up uh, conventions and things. And uh, recently cosplayed as one of my characters, which was a, a big benefit. Like uh, built all my uh, – built one of my uh, police characters out of um, – EVA foam, It so it's like anti-fatigue foam you make armor out of it, and that's how they make like the Halo Master Chief outfits so that was a, a lot of fun to do to support that and um, I don't know just uh, talking to people like you and just kind of seeing what else I can stir up, really
2: Well, you, I think you have been to be quite honest, like I say, doing it and yes, I know it's kind of, you know, little steps you know what I mean, it's like you say, the, the dream doesn't come straight away, but it just, you know, you, you just kind of keep on pushing it and pushing it and publicity and publicity and hopefully it'll take off. I think the, the cool idea is, like I say, I get quite a number of people saying, oh, I've got this new book, too, and you have got this new book. But, you know, when you're kind of doing your your own artwork and that, that's quite a, a cool, you know, quirky little thing as well. So, you know, long may, you know, you carry on doing your artwork with your books. I think that's a, you know, a, a little sideline that's just, it, it catches people's eyes. So... Well done.
5: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's a, it's served me well. <laughs>
2: well, Ben, honestly, thank you so much for coming on Starship Over and good luck with this book and with, you know, with the a Hunt for a Job and the second volume. <laughs> <laughs>
5: oh, yes, living the dream.
2: <laughs> there you go. I've got a link on the Ben site. If you want to go and get that book there, that would be fantastic. That would be really nice. Thank you so much. So that is Starship Sofa. The Christmas edition. Yes. With no expense spared. Yes. You just, I just go daft. Go daft. So I'm just about to now wrap up this. Have a lovely time over Christmas. I would like to say we're going to have a, a week off. And then I will be back the following week with like a meta show. Which will have no kind of science fiction stories or anything like that. Just be me sitting down in front of the fire with a glass of whiskey, nice little, you know, 10-year, well, we'll see what, if I get any for Christmas, because I've gone on, sucked a lot. (laughs) So listen, honestly, everyone that's kind of listens to Starships over, you know, I've made some
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery, soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Lovely friends over. And I'll get all into this, you know, all teary-eyed next week or next time I, I talk. You know, because there's some amazing people out there with amazing jobs. You know what I mean? So that's what else I'll be talking about in the Meta Show as well. So have a fantastic Christmas and an amazing new year. And like I say, I will see you in the new year when we kick off at a Meta Show. Merry Christmas, everyone. Love yous loads.